I'm Mary. I'm Nolan. I'm Lakita Ann. And I'm Austin. We are your hosts, and this is Your World, Your Money. We will be talking real money with real people in a real way. Because everyone deserves the opportunity and tools for freedom, financial or otherwise. Your World, Your Money is brought to you by Hanger Studios, a New York City-based recording studio, and Global Thinking Foundation, a global nonprofit working toward financial freedom and equality for all. Right, welcome back, money people. We are so happy to have you with us back on the podcast. This is Your World, Your Money, brought to you by Global Thinking USA. Today, we are kicking off our series on ethical spending and the power of your dollar. We really want to dive into how much our monetary choices impact the economy and the world from $1 to $1,000. Every one of us has an impact. Today, we are going to be talking about giving and when you donate and what can happen when it goes wrong. This is Nolan DeFrancesco, and I'm going to kick off to our co-host today, Mary Rossi. Hi, guys, and thank you so much, Nolan. That's right. We are going to get into one of the more uncomfortable spaces that we as a foundation could get into. And we're going to talk when charitable giving can Well, when it can really go wrong. But honestly, I'm excited to have this conversation. I know that personally, I can get frustrated sometimes when my friends or my family tell me that they've been giving to organizations that I kind of know that they don't use that money in the way that my friends or family believe that they do. And maybe that's on marketing, maybe that's on them. But you know, when I know that, I get frustrated sometimes. So I personally love the idea of talking about what a blue sky dream world charity looks like for a giver, donor, and just as much what an unethical or wasteful charity could look like. Also, to be honest, everybody, just be prepared. I'm going to be taking notes over here and I'm going to have them ready for my friends and family the next time they're telling me something and be like, you know what? I came prepared this time. I've got a list for you. (laughs) Exactly. This is definitely one industry and sector that doesn't lose from having a watchdog to make sure that charities are being ethical and honest. And on that note, I'd love to introduce Lori Styron. Lori, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Lori Styron was appointed executive director of Charity Watch in 2020 after more than 16 years of commitment to the organization. She served as Charity Watch's senior analyst through 2012 and thereafter as program consultant through her nonprofit accounting and consulting practice. Lori has logged more than 10,000 hours as a nonprofit financial analyst, including advising a wide range of media outlets on investigative pieces involving nonprofits, conducting research and financial analysis, and providing interviews for television and radio, as well as print and online publications. Lori, you have an amazing bio, and we're so excited to be able to ask you about it. Well, fire away. (laughs) I think we're really interested on what got you interested in this work. What got you interested in the work of analyzing charities? What led you to begin working for Charity Watch? What led you to this world? Well, do you want the short story or the long story? I, I I think we're here for the long haul. Well, you know, in that case... 
I live in a big city now. I've lived in Chicago for over 17 years now, but I grew up in a really small town. Giving back to the community was just part of the fabric of the culture. It's just part of what you did when I was young. Um, I painted houses for Habitat for Humanity. I raised funds with my local church to help homeless people through rummage sales and ice cream socials and that kind of thing. And, you know, in small communities, there are more organic checks and balances in place when it comes to charitable giving. You know everybody. It would be really rare for something to happen to that money before it gets where it's supposed to go. And then I, you know, as I got older and I got out into the big bad world, I saw that that really wasn't the case on a larger scale the way it is in a small town. So I worked for for-profit businesses early in my career, and I started working in social services for a couple of years in an accounting capacity, got me interested even more in the nonprofit world, you know, also bringing my financial background to the table. And then when I moved here to Chicago, I saw an ad <laughs> for this, you know, charity watchdog organization. And I thought, wow, this really kind of has everything in it for me professionally that I could want. I'm able to give back and I'm able to kind of use my specialized skills, uh, my analytical skills and my accounting background to give back in a very specific way that I'm uniquely suited to. So that's really how I got into it. And um, that was 17 years ago, and I've liked it enough that I've kept at it. That's incredible. Could you tell us a little bit about the history of Charity Watch and you know, the kind of work you all do? Sure. The organization was founded in 1992 by Daniel Borokov. He had previously worked at a now defunct nonprofit reading organization called the National Charities Information Bureau that was based in New York. He worked and lived in New York at the time. And he, he left there not too long before it folded, and he decided he wanted to start his own charity watchdog organization. You know, at the time, there's a lot of information available online now about charities, some of it higher quality than others. But at the time that he started this organization, there was very little. First of all, there was no online. Um, and it was very, very difficult for people to find information about nonprofits and even more difficult to find information about how efficiently they were operating. You basically sent your money in the mail, you get a telemarketing call, you get a direct mail letter, and you just kind of send it in the mail and hope for the best. We've come a long way since then, in some good ways and some bad. We kind of have the opposite problem now, which is that now there's too much information about charities, but the quality of it is more often than not low. And so now people have the opposite problem, whereas before there was so little info, and now there's almost too much that it's different version of the same problem. The average donor doesn't know where to look to find useful information about how to choose a, an efficient and effective charity. I absolutely love what you're sharing about how you have these community roots. You grew up around this very communal idea of how to give back. And I think that a lot of times we miss that. So it sounds to me like Charity Watch very much resonates with how you grew up and what you were instilled with as like a young girl growing up in this smaller community. I mean, obviously not like Chicago. Chicago is pretty big. Well, I, I grew up in Northeast Ohio, not, you know, about 45 minutes yeah, away from Cleveland, uh, not far from Kent State University. But I come from a long line of Lutheran farmers. So <laughs> in those smaller communities, giving back is really 
It's altruistic, but it's also a matter of survival for a lot of people. When your crop fails, your neighbor helps you. When their crop fails, you help them. Your word is your bond and your reputation is currency. You know, and as I was saying before, there's a more organic set of checks and balances in this, in that context. And when you get into the big bad charity world of 400 billion plus dollars annually of giving, that really falls apart quickly. And so that's why, you know, there are all of these accounting and reporting rules that charities have to follow. A lot of them don't like following them. They are kind of burdensome, but they're there for a reason. I've certainly seen over the past nearly 20 years, the reason that they're there. Oh, wow. I can only imagine. (laughs) Too many examples, more than I'd like to count. Oh, no, we're going to talk examples. So keep the ones you're thinking of in your hat. We're going to talk about them in just a second. We have such a focus as a foundation on this like communal aspect and community and, and really emphasizing that kind, just like you said, that reputation is everything because that really speaks to like who you are. That speaks to like what you represent and what you want to put out in the world. And so thinking in that vein of like what people want to put out in the world and what they want to represent, Thinking of all of these stories that you've seen and experienced and like all of the the situations that you've been through so far, what are some of the biggest mistakes, quote unquote mistakes, obviously, because I'm sure some people thought that they were doing good or some people on the other side of the table thought maybe that wasn't so great. But what are some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen charities make and are still making just inherently because of how they're operating? Well, that really fits into two different buckets. There are the charities who have very passionate founders who pour their heart and soul into starting a nonprofit and they grow it and they're just really, it's a 24-7 thing for them and they just are very passionate about it. But in some cases, those people, they lack the business skills or the kind of legal understanding of the regulatory environment or their legal obligations or financial obligations. And then irrespective of how much passion they have and how much good they want to do, how well-intentioned they are, they end up making some bad mistakes in some cases. I've seen a lot of people like that who they fail to register in the states they need to register in, you know, to do their solicitations. About 40 of the 50 states require charities to register in their states before they're allowed to solicit there. And then about 20 of those states require charities to file audited financial statements once they get to be a certain size. And I've seen a number of examples of people starting up charities because they are a disabled veteran, for example, and they come back, they want to do something good. They start up a charity and they just kind of, they grow to a certain size because it's a popular cause. I saw one recently grow to be about a $3 million charity and there was no audit to be found anywhere. (laughs) No. Yeah. I called up the guy and talked to him and he admitted that he didn't have one. He didn't know he was supposed to have one. And the nonprofit had grown very quickly. It only had been around for a couple of years. And so, you know, in that situation, I basically passed on the information to him of what he needed to do and the places he needed the contact to get that rectified. You know, and I told him, this is really important to donors, not just your legal and governmental reporting obligations. This is important to donors. And the next time I ask, I'm not going to be able to be as nice. You know, I'm not, I'm not out, I'm not out to get anybody. You know, I want to help people, including the charities that maybe 
due to lack of confidence, just kind of get in a little over their heads. But, you know, at the end of the day, we do need to protect donors as well. And so once a nonprofit starts raising a few million dollars, you know, it becomes an issue. And just to explain really fast, when you were saying solicit in different states, that just means like 40 of the 50 states, that nonprofit, that charity has to be registered to receive donations. To even ask for them in most states. The different state regulations are different on a state-by-state basis. So unfortunately, yeah, to the chagrin of all of us in the nonprofit world, even my nonprofit, we have to register in all of these states and it's really time-consuming and it's expensive. It costs, you know, a few thousand bucks to, oh, to do all I know this it. every year. To even solicit in most states, charities do need to be registered there. But this is a good protection for donors because um, sometimes a charity is located, say, in Florida, but they're soliciting people in Idaho. And then people in Idaho think like, oh, I have no way to find out information about this charity because it's not local. And then I say, oh, no, you do. (laughs) There's lots of ways to find out information. Let me give it to you because you just have to go to Florida and look up their registration. Florida actually has a good online database with lots of good financial data in it. Lori, you had mentioned that there were kind of like two camps that people can um, or nonprofits can get into. And so you were talking about like this very ardent founder and like this this person that just like was really passionate and wanted to start a charity. What's what's the other side of that? Like what's the other camp that people can fall into when it comes to making these potentially very big mistakes that you see a lot? Well, this one is more sad because, because in, you know, in the former example, you have someone who generally once they become aware of the issues, then they want to work hard to correct those. The second example is bad actors within the sector who know how to stay just barely on the side of legality and continue to essentially exploit donors for as much money as they possibly can to funnel it into salaries or into fundraising contracts with friends of friends or what have you. And they know just how to stay right on this side of the law so that they they don't get in trouble for it. Or if they get in trouble for it, it's some kind of minor fee that if you're bilking $5 million a year out of donors, and then annually you have to pay penalties of $600. I mean, it doesn't take a math genius to figure out that that's, that's a good return on investment, not from an ethical perspective, but from a financial perspective. The other camp is that, and this is something that a lot of people are aware of, but that none of us really loves to think about all the time, which is that there are predatory people who learn everything they can about how to operate within this sector. They take advantage of a lot of high empathy people and it's not difficult to do. They play on people's emotions. They follow the regulations just as much as they need to to get away with it. And the unfortunate thing is that giving is a fixed pie. It's been about 2% of GDP for over 40 years you know, give or take. So every dollar that goes to one of these bad actors is a dollar that could have gone to some nonprofit that was going to do something really great with it, you know, and then multiply that times however much you want to think is going that way every year, but it's a lot. And thinking that it can really be almost anybody, what should donors or givers of of any level, like whether we're talking, you know, way up there with the like, oh, wow, that could have bought me a house or, you know, the people that are just able to give a few dollars, but they want to give because they really believe in this. What should they be aware of? Like, how can we find out about the mistakes? 
or how can we find out if they're a, just a really ardent founder or they're doing super great or if there's potentially like nefarious actor in there? How can any donor really, like what can they be aware of? What can they watch out for? There's no perfect or simple solution. Oh, <laughs> I know I wish there were, but I can give a little bit of advice. And I guess the first piece is a little plug for my organization at charitywatch.org. We have all of our top rated charities on our website available to the public for free. So anyone who doesn't have a lot of money, they have 50 bucks to give somewhere. They don't even have money to give to us, but they they have 50 bucks or 60 bucks. They want to give it to a specific cause. They can just go to our top rated page and find the cause that's important to them. We have them about 36 of them, I think now. So if it's cancer or veterans or environment or animals, people can go there and find a charity that we have vetted for financial efficiency and governance and transparency. And they can just select one of those charities and give their 50 bucks away. You know, for someone who has more to give, they should do a little bit more due diligence because a lot of times when people have a lot of money to give, they're looking to not just put a bandaid on a problem, but they're looking to maybe solve an, an underlying problem that is driving some kind of societal need in the first place. Some people have invested a lot of money in these problems and have failed spectacularly. <laughs> I think part of it is that, you know, some people are very, very successful in business. And then sometimes they, they think that that makes them an expert in a lot of other areas. And then maybe they don't listen as much as they need to in some of the to some of the people who've been working in a certain field for 30 or 40 years, people who have a lot of money to give, they need to do more research, probably on impact. Because uh, I think someone like that, they're going to think of it more like a business plan where they're going to have something really specific that they want to achieve. And then they really have to go out and find the right people and the right organizations to work with to try to achieve some very specific goals. That makes a lot of sense. I'm really interested to learn to what extent Charity Watch takes a look at charities outside of the U.S. And I'm curious if you see any gaps between what global charities are doing and the work they're doing and sometimes maybe the pitfalls of the work they are doing versus domestic charities. And many charities that are marketed to a U.S. individual are these international organizations that work in multiple countries outside of the country. Do you tend to see that they do work better than purely domestic charities worse, or is it hard to make a distinction like that? You know, that's really difficult for me to say for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because I don't specialize in evaluating programs in a deep way, right? We specialize primarily in analyzing finances. So we're really looking deeply at audits and tax filings and legal filings and fundraising contracts and that type of thing. It really takes some people who have a specialization in a specific field to really have the ability to dig into to that kind of program evaluation in a very meaningful way. And there are people who specialize in doing that. I will say that international nonprofits, they definitely have more complexity, including in their finances. One example I can give is that there are a handful of nonprofits that we look at that their U.S. entity, legal entity, is essentially a fundraising arm. So we're able to judge how efficiently they raise funds in the United States. We can give donors a fundraising percentage of 
this charity spends about $15 to raise every $100 in cash support from you. But we can't give a program percentage because these types of nonprofits, they have fundraising arms in the US and Sweden and Switzerland and Italy, right? And then it all goes to a global nonprofit. And then that global nonprofit is the entity that conducts the programs. It's difficult when nonprofits like that don't have an aggregated consolidated audit that includes all of their legal entities. So you're kind of conducting a piecemeal financial analysis, uh, sometimes, you know, looking at U.S. GAAP and then international financial reporting standards also. So it becomes a little tricky um, for a nonprofit like us to kind of delve into that level of program evaluation. But there are groups out there who, who specialize in that and do that. Something that I think was so important that I just kind of wanted to, to highlight there, because even as you said it, I was like, wow, like, that's almost crazy to think about. You were saying how there's literally sp- specific people that this is their specialty to look at this and to analyze like the international charities and, you know, the good that they're doing and like all of that. And it takes a specialized person. And that makes me think like, if I were just an individual, like I'm not in the nonprofit world, I just really care about things that I want to give to those organizations that I really care about. That must be so difficult to kind of track and kind of find those groups of people that are doing this highly specialized thing. And I I just love that you highlighted that. Well, I think the good news with a lot of the international organizations is that that is not the category of nonprofits where we find the most abuse. Oh, that's interesting. When you have groups like Oxfam, Doctors Without Borders, Amnesty International, CARE, these are all great groups that are doing great work. And they're doing slightly different work and they're doing work in different places. And some of them do work and realize that it's not effective and then they change and do something else. And, you know, these are groups that typically are evaluating themselves. They might be hiring outside consultants to evaluate their work and help them figure out what they can do better. But generally speaking, with a lot of these international aid types of groups, you're generally dealing with groups that are pretty financially efficient and committed from the get-go. Again, that's not really where we see the most abuse. Building on one thing you said, Lori, in terms of fundraising, there's this notion that charities should raise a certain amount of money and most of that money, the largest percent possible, should go to programmatic work and their actual charitable work. But I've heard that some charities have the model of they do put a lot back into the administrative and the marketing and the fundraising capacity because it expands the overall pool of money that they raise. And so the percentage of funds that go towards programmatic work may be lower, but the overall amount raised is higher. How, how are we supposed to assess that and what really is the, the best possible use of money for charities? Do you have any thoughts there? I do. There was a charity that we reported on just a couple years ago that got into some trouble called Wonderwork that basically had this model that you're talking about where the general attitude was raise as much money as you possibly can. And who cares if you have to dump almost all of it back into more fundraising and then you use that money to raise more money and then you dump most of that into more fundraising. I guess the question is, well, when does that end? When does the big pool of money that you have raised eventually get to the programmatic activities? Or is the whole purpose just this sort of 
very sort of extreme, committed, free market, growth at all costs, nothing else matters kind of attitude. I think that if you have to lie to donors to raise money, then that should tip you off right away that that model isn't so ethical. You know, if you have to mislead donors in your fundraising materials and your marketing materials and make them think that most of their money is going to some very specific programmatic purpose and most of it's really going to fundraising, that tells you right there that that's wrong. You're not honoring donors' intentions. All charities need to spend money to bring money in. It's not about keeping it the lowest. You know, it's not about this charity spends $9 to raise every $100 and this one spends 15. You can't use that single variable to judge one charity being better than another. A lot of it would depend on maybe the other one's much newer. Maybe one of them gets most of their money from the government, which is a lot less expensive to raise money for. You know, maybe one of them has a small pool of very committed high dollar donors and the other doesn't. Maybe one's raising money for a more controversial cause and the lower fundraising one's raising money for a very easy cause that everyone would support. There's lots of reasons and contexts that have to be considered. So it's not about keeping the program percentage as high as possible and the fundraising as low as possible. It's about keeping them both reasonable. When you get out of that reasonable range, that's where you have a problem because if you can't look your donors in the eye and sort of proudly tell them what you're spending money on, that tips you off right there that you're not honoring the intentions of the people who are supporting you. What you're highlighting here is is very much about truth and honesty and naturally like that's something that we very very much care about. And within that question, I'd love to hear from you like what are some of the biggest transparency gaps that you've seen between charities and givers. It can be givers of any level, just like where where have you seen those biggest gaps where that truth maybe isn't as honest as possible? Well, now you're going to get me to talk about nerdy accounting stuff, which I love to do. So I'll try not to bore you with it too much if, if it is boring. <laughs> but um, one of the accounting tricks that we see charities using to make themselves appear more efficient to donors than they really are is they use something called joint costs. And this is when a nonprofit sends you a lot of direct mail or they hire a telemarketing company to call you on the phone. And they basically include some kind of call to action and some kind of educational message so that they can claim that all the money that they spent, which often is in the millions of dollars when they hire these types of professional fundraising companies, they can claim that not all, but a significant portion of the money they spent soliciting you on the phone that day or sending you these direct mail letters. They can claim that that's a program. They can claim that they're educating you, that they have, you know, inspired. Oh, shady. What? Right. This is allowed under generally accepted accounting principles. So it's allowed to be reported in the IRS tax form 990 this way. So it's not that charities are doing something that they're not allowed to do from a reporting perspective, but From all the donors I've spoken to over the years, very rarely do I encounter a donor who thinks that all the telemarketing calls they get are a program of the charity and that when they donate to that charity, they're basically just funding more telemarketing calls um, or more direct mail letters. At Charity Watch, we make adjustments for that type of spending. We take it out of program and we put it right back into fundraising where we think it really belongs. And once we do that, in some cases, it only makes a minor difference of a few percent. 
But for some charities, their entire fundraising model is only using these outside professional fundraisers. And so you could have a charity that at face value looks like it's spending 85% on programs. And then once we make this financial adjustment, they are spending 12% on programs. So it can be very drastic. Yeah, and absolutely. You just said a moment ago that some of these outside agencies can be millions of dollars. And I mean, maybe I'm crazy. I feel like I'm not. But to me, that's a lot of money, especially for a nonprofit when you look at their whole budget. I'm like, oh, that's that's not a small drop of change there that's, you know, going in two different places. Sure. I mean, of course, you know, you have your really, really large, you know, $100 million nonprofits, $200 million nonprofits, but those are rare, right? For the most part, when I've seen this type of abuse, it's typically a $12 million a year charity spending $9 million on these activities. So it just makes up a really, you know, significant portion of the total spending. And really, you know, in some cases, when we look to see, well, what other programs do they even have that they're spending money on besides this quote unquote education? <laughs> and oftentimes there is either nothing or there will be a few token grants of five grand going to three people or something. It's really, you know, nothing much to speak of. We suspect, but often cannot prove that a lot of these deals are somehow funneling money to the people running the organization or the friends and family of the people running the organization. Because of the disclosure rules, we often can't perfectly connect the dots so we can kind of see the writing on the wall. But there is an interesting tidbit that I want to mention here, which is that a lot of times donors are really obsessed with executive salaries at charities. And I can tell you that with a few exceptions, a lot of the abuse that I see in the millions of dollars, a lot of that occurs at charities that are either paying their executives nothing or they're paying them very, very little, like you know, $35,000 a year or something, which kind of tells you that these people are getting money another way. <laughs> so even if we can't totally connect the dots, we can kind of see the writing on the wall. You know, we can't report on things unless we have very substantial evidence to back it up. So even if I have a suspicion, I can't report that to donors. But what I can report to donors is that they only spend 12% of their budgets on program. So hopefully donors can take that information and make a good decision. So for my OCD people out there that are taking notes. That's a big one that should have been highlighted for everybody taking notes with me out there. (laughs) That's really interesting about the executive pay and and what that means or doesn't mean in terms of whether a charity is on the level or not. And so I want to ask, I mean, you know, it's easy for us to imagine all these different ways in which charities may not always have the best intention and maybe there's some some shady stuff going on. Um, I'm curious with your years of looking into all this, like what are some of the worst examples you've seen? And I'd love for us to move into a conversation about how donors this holiday season can really be aware of that when they're, they're giving their money. I could name names. I, I generally don't like to name too many names unless I have adequate time to really kind of give a fair assessment. But I think what's probably more important to donors and the people listening is to kind of know more generally what to look out for. And I would say the first thing is that there are certain causes that attract more of these predatory types of people than others. The predatory types of people, they generally are not raising money for controversial causes because those are more difficult to raise money for. They're generally going for the kids with cancer, the disabled veterans, the blind puppies, you know, this kind of thing where they can include very evocative 
imagery and their fundraising materials and really kind of create an emotional response that can get a lot of people to give a lot of money very quickly. So anytime you're giving to a popular cause, the great news about popular causes is that there are always a lot of great charities working in that cause too. You know, take your time. Just because a charity asked you for money, it doesn't make you not generous to wait. Someone asks you for money, you can use that as a catalyst to inspire your giving, but you should stop, go home, find an efficient charity working in that cause, and then donate to that one. Do it thoughtfully. This is a a little uh, tag I like to say often, but it really is true that you can, as a donor, accomplish more by giving $100 to a financially efficient, responsible charity than you can giving $1,000 to one that is not financially efficient or responsible with your donation. And the difference between those two decisions sometimes is 10 or 15 minutes. So just take the time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we're going to get into this question a bit next week, but I, Laura, I'd love to have your thoughts on this, is what makes a charity recognized and highly effective? When Charity Watch celebrates a charity for being a standout organization, what defines them as standout? What are they doing right? And for givers in the U.S., when you recognize an organization, what should that mean to them? At Charity Watch, we really try to stay out of the moral judgments because we really need to, especially in this very polarized climate that we're in now, we don't want to get into the business of telling people what causes should be important to them or should not be important to them. We want to stay focused on letting the donors make that decision about what causes inspire them. And then we want to be, you know, the organization that then helps them find an efficient nonprofit working within whatever cause they want to support. So from a financial efficiency perspective, our top rated charities generally spend 75% or more of their cash budgets on programs. And this is after the adjustments we make, not necessarily how the charities report it themselves. They generally spend less than $25 to raise each $100 in public support. And then they meet a number of governance and transparency benchmarks that we have, including posting their audited financial statements on their website is one of them. We're entering the season of giving. And I want to make sure we end on a a note of optimism and that people can feel good about the money they are giving. So do you have any thoughts to encourage people We don't want to have any of this conversation dissuade people from giving. What's your note of optimism for the charity world and what the message we should leave for donors? Well, I guess I can leave you with this. I have worked in a watchdog role for almost 20 years of my life now, and I still give to charity all the time. So there are good charities out there. In fact, the vast majority of them are good charities. We just have to take the time. Be proactive in your giving. Don't give in reaction to someone asking. And just take the time to find the the ones that are responsible and efficient and that have a track record in working in the types of causes that are important to you. It's really important. We have a duty to each other, you know, in our society to give back. We really do. You know, from time to time, there's going to be a bad actor that comes along and does some terrible things and Charity Watch will be there to expose them. So don't worry about that. But, you know, don't let that stop you from from giving to the good charities, because there are an awful lot of people working so, so hard. A lot of people don't work in the nonprofit sector for the paycheck. They can work somewhere else for a lot more money. 
they put their heart and soul into helping people. And if you have a little extra money to give, just take 10, 15 extra minutes, check out Charity Watch's top rated list, you know, do some research on your own, find a good charity and definitely give as generously as you can. I think that's a great message to end on. That's the best message to end on. My goodness. Well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys so much for coming and listening with us and learning a lot and diving into this conversation that sometimes might be a little bit uncomfortable, but is so powerfully important for everything that we do because In this little series that we're talking about, there is so much power in the dollar that you have. It doesn't matter if it's 10 or a thousand, a hundred thousand, there is power in that choice and where that dollar goes when you give back or when you return that money to the community that helped make you what you are or communities that you really care about. So next week, we're going to keep talking on ethical spending and the power of your dollar. So we look forward to seeing you guys next week and talking more money stuff. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening in with Your World, Your Money. You can find us at ywympodcast.com and stay updated on Instagram at Global Thinking Foundation USA. Be sure to rate and review us, and you can reach us with questions or thoughts at hi at ywympodcast.com. Our thanks again to Hangar Studios and Global Thinking Foundation. Thanks, friends. Happy money making. See you next time.